Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 542, with Mark Marchioni. It's one of the things that makes uh, running uh, restaurants um, in particular, but, but really any business, uh, very difficult. Uh, you have moving goalposts continually, and the codes change every couple of years. So and, unless you're keeping up with all the codes, the, the electrical, the plumbing, uh, uh, the hazmat, the, the fire suppressions, um, it, it's, it can be a little wondrous for you. And if you hire somebody to go through all those for you, that's also a very large expense. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge then join eric cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable cash flow is something every small business is worried about and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing and worse it's virtually impossible to predict the future until now welcome to cashflowtool.com the ultimate companion for any small business using quickbooks cashflowtool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow and it also alerts for unexpected expenses on top of all this it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow next week and next month go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price introducing ethics suite the first and only misconduct theft and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously easily and securely from any device with internet connection however if you're an owner or manager you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurant unstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Mark Marchioni. Mark, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely, Eric. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. So hailing from Pennsylvania, Mark Marchioni had has been in the restaurant business for 30 years in Philadelphia, Vermont, and Florida. About five years ago, Mark and his wife, Stacy decided to make the move back to New England and settled on Rochester, New Hampshire. And in 2014, Revolution Taproom and Grill was born. And in 2015, they were named New Hampshire Magazine's Best New Restaurant. Obviously, I'm just scraping the surface. Mark, I can't wait to dive into your story and find out who you are, what makes you you, and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with the success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Ben Franklin. It's actually a misquote, but uh, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, man, that's a great way to get this thing started. And uh, take us to where it all started for you. So how'd you get into the industry and... I guess just we'll start there. Well, I think like most people, I had a misspent youth. Uh, started off as a dishwasher uh, for summer jobs uh, and moved up to busboy and then eventually moved up to waiter. Um, and it was always a, a quick and easy way to uh, earn a little cash for your pocket. And uh, went off to college. Um, after college, Still wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do as I was looking at grad schools. I got some uh, jobs as a waiter, 
to make ends meet. And then from waiter, I moved up to bartender, from bartender to manager, from manager to owner. Uh, there's an old saying in the restaurant business that either uh, you move up or you move out. Yeah. So I'm curious, was uh, the tap room your Sorry, the Revolution Taproom, was that your first ownership position or were you owning restaurants before moving to New Hampshire? It's the first one I uh, owned uh, myself. Okay. Uh, I've had business partners and we've done other uh, operations in uh, Sarasota, Florida, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Vermont. uh, But this is the first one I owned myself. All right. Got you. Uh, So – Really take us to the point, I guess, where things really started getting intentional, where you committed your life to the food and beverage industry. And and you said, that, well, you know, maybe after grad school when you kind of just accepted your fate, I guess. <laughs> um, well, let's see. It was probably around 2000 or so. Um, a friend of mine uh, who was a brewer came to me uh, with the idea of opening up a brew pub in – Key West, Florida. Um, he had scouted out some locations. He needed someone to run the, the front of the house and uh, be a business partner in it. And uh, I went down to, to Key West, looked at the sites, um, did our due diligence. Uh, eventually, we couldn't get the projects done uh, but we so much liked the idea of opening up a brew pub uh, uh, that we decided to uh, stay together and look for a different project. And that's when we ended up in Vermont, of all places. All right. So set it up before this time in Florida. What were you doing? What, what did your life look like? When were You were working in restaurants. Were you committed to the industry at this point? Or what was going no, on there? No, I'd done a lot of... Um, uh, serving, bartending, uh, but really what I was doing at that time, uh, probably in the uh, mid-90s, was real estate. I was uh, purchasing properties, renting them out, uh, doing a lot of that uh, for extra income. Um, you know, One of the things is you can make a lot of money as a server and bartender, but Part of the problem is you end up with a lifestyle where no matter what you make, you end up spending it all. And uh, I learned very early on not to do that. And so that gave me uh, more of the resources uh, to start purchasing uh, properties back then. And uh, when I started with that, they were cheap. You could buy a house for $70,000. Jesus, man. So – Originally, you're in the real estate game and you're side hustling on the restaurant industry. You grew up working in the restaurant industry. You're continuing to work in the restaurant industry for uh, supplemental capital. Uh, and you're good at what you do. I mean, were there any mentors at this point in your life? Any like restaurateur mentors or people you're looking up to? Or uh, take us to that point where maybe there's some influences in your life that say, hey, like you're good at this. <laughs> um. Actually, I've always said that I've learned far more in the industry from the bad owners and the bad managers than I ever have from the good owners or the good managers, Uh, because the people who are good at their jobs usually make it look flawless, and so it's hard to learn from them by watching them, because everything just comes naturally uh, to them, whereby the people who aren't very good 
uh, or have to struggle daily, um, whether they're too gruff or too mean or not good with numbers or whatever the situation is, um, that you can learn from. You, you learn to what not to do. And, um, you know, that has helped out over the years. Uh, I'm probably the last of the generation where yelling and screaming in the kitchen uh, was commonplace. Uh, so I still have that to overcome. <laughs> so really, um, take me to one of these people, a lesson that you learned from one of these people without getting specific as to who they are, the name of the restaurant. Uh, but give me one lesson that was something not to do or a way to be that you, you pull from this experience specifically. Uh, well, let's see. I worked uh, with one uh, gentleman um, back in Pennsylvania. Uh, we used to uh, – the joke used to be he was uh, he was Greek, but we used to call him Tony Montana because okay. that's the way he talked to people. You effing that. Yeah. And, uh, and he eventually would talk to customers that way because he saw no differentiation. Okay. <laughs> and so he could very much alienate a customer very, very quickly. Um, interestingly enough, some customers found it charming, <laughs> but a few did not. Yeah. And, I'm guessing more than, uh, more found it not so charming than charming. Uh, true. <laughs> so, I mean, what happens when you alienate the, the, the customer? Get, get dive into that a little bit more. Like, what 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 is he creating in that in that that instance? Uh, nothing good. Uh, the customer. Uh, it's a cliche, but it's true. The customer is king, and though most people, uh, the old adage that the customer is always right. Well, the customer isn't always right, but you have to treat them as if they're always right. Mm-hmm. Um, Somebody may tell you this steak is undercooked or overcooked and you're looking at the steak and it is done to the exact temperature, but apparently they uh, had an idea, a different idea of what medium was or medium rare was. And you have to grin and bite it, (laughs) you know, and uh, apologize for, you know, for a mistake that's not yours and uh, go try to make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, and, and for a lot of people, especially chef owners, uh, that's very hard because they're, they're it's coming out ego there. Well, th- they know they did it correctly yeah. and the customer's telling them no. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's hard for them to you know, sort of swallow that pride and and say, yes, I made a mistake or not say anything about it. And uh, it's unfortunately necessary to, to do. And a lot of uh, chef owners have a real hard time with that. You know, I can't help but think, uh, I think Danny Myers is one of the things he's, he's famous for saying so many things, but one thing that he does say is it doesn't matter who's right. At the end of the day, it's just a matter is that they're happy and they could be completely wrong, but are they happy? And sometimes you just got to like kind of bite your tongue, like, and just make sure they're happy. That's really all that matters at the end of that interaction. So, uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, 15 years you were in the industry before, uh, partnering with this gentleman in Sarasota. 
you didn't have anybody who was a positive influence. I mean, you were doing something right. This guy saw something in you. You must have learned something. Uh, no positive influences during that 15 years. Um, well, listen, I, uh, I saw the restaurants of uh, being in Philadelphia of uh, George Perrier and, um, uh, and the Star restaurants. And I saw the people whose concepts um, were as great as the food. And I saw what they did correctly. Um, for the most part, I never worked under these people, but looking what they did and how they did it, um, they went big. And uh, in both those cases, it, it paid off uh, handsomely. Give me an example of somebody that you, you think of, a restaurant, a group that you look to and say, these guys are doing it right. Get specific. Um, well, the Star uh, restaurant group began in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, he took over. The first place he ever owned was an old uh, – he purchased an old diner and turned it into a martini bar, uh, I believe, in the, the early 90s. And, you know, just when the martini bar idea was starting to catch on, and he did extremely well with it, a few years later uh, – he opened up, uh, I believe it was Tangiers and then Budokan. And uh, from there, you know, the sky was the limit. Uh, Elvez, there was some French restaurant and so on. But what was always impressed me about the place is that the concept um, was the dominant theme. Uh, very early on, he decided he didn't want any celebrity chefs he didn't the chefs weren't the focus the food obviously had to be tremendous but no nobody that would overshadow the concept of the place and he took the concepts uh to the extreme um so when i hear you say concept what comes to my mind are things like the the attention to detail the experience the all the other stuff aside from the food right yes okay so uh so that was the big lesson for you is that it has to be more than just the food. It has to be the, the big picture, the concept. What are they trying to do? Am I, am I picking up what you're putting down? Oh, absolutely. Okay, cool. Uh, keep going. Were you going to say something else? <laughs> <laughs> well, just you know, that attention to detail, taking that theme and not just, let's say you're, you're a Mexican restaurant and not taking that, okay, I'm going to have some Mexican colors up and – maybe uh, a couple of Mexican hats or something like that. You see at sort of a lot of uh, Mexican restaurants, but taking that theme and doing it well, doing it classy, um, taking that, for example, Elvez. Um, I love this idea that he get that name is basically Elvis. And the idea is that Elvis, um, uh, you have one of those old cheesy paintings of Elvis on velvet. <laughs> and so that's the concept for the restaurant. Interesting. And so you have a lot of the bright Mexican colors and, and uh, the booths and you're doing it and it's cheesy, but uh, done in almost like a sophisticated cheese. <laughs> it's yeah. done very well. It's very interesting and it works. 
Interesting. So uh, let's zoom back to Sarasota. You have your business partner. Uh, are you at this point? Um, are you? Where are you in your life? I guess so, like, are you making full time income from real estate? Is this a side project? Paint that picture for us. Uh, when we moved down to uh, Sarasota for that project, um, uh, I was married. Uh, my wife was uh, pregnant with our first child. And the concept um, was starting to have problems. Um, I had, we'd done a very successful place together in Vermont. And um, the, we started to get a lot of overages in the, the budget. We had to build out the, the brewery, the cold room, the grain room. And those, uh, I went away for a couple of weeks uh, to get some things done on my end. When I came back, I saw, uh, uh, seven change orders that he had signed off on. And I said, did you look at what they were charging for these change orders? And he said, no. (laughs) And I go, okay, well, this has blown our budget. Man. What is a change order? Just a change order is, you're asking the original concept and the original thing for the contractors, you're doing X. And as you're looking at it, maybe X isn't working or they've, the contractors maybe came across something that's a problem. And so something needs to be changed. And so to make sure everybody's on the same page, you do a change order. Mm-hmm. And uh, the contractor writes up the change order and the uh, head of the project uh the owner signs off on it. And so with, you know, one change order is 12,000, another change order is 30,000, none change order is 6,000, none change order is, you know, is 40. And so quickly that's eating up a lot of our extra budget. Absolutely. And so things started um, falling apart between uh, myself and my partner at that time, as you would expect. Um, eventually, uh, we decided to part ways. Uh, I had him, uh, buy me out at which point our, uh, daughter was born and my wife being from Connecticut wanted to move back, uh, to new England, uh, to be near her parents. And, uh, I had no desire to move to Connecticut. Neither of us had a desire to move to Massachusetts. Uh, I had lived in Vermont, so I had sort of been there, done that. And so it was between New Hampshire and Maine. And we settled on New Hampshire. All right. I kind of, I'm curious uh, about this relationship um, and what what led up to the the miscommunications with the change orders and really trying to pull a lesson from that. Uh, so how did this uh, partnership form in the first place? Uh, he was the person uh, back in 2000 that I started uh, with the concept in Key West. We ended up uh, owning and operating a place uh, in Vermont uh, quite successfully, but we needed to, we wanted to expand that concept. So you guys were working on a project in Florida together. Yes. Uh, you were front of house. Was he back of house? What, was, what were your roles? What were your lanes? Uh, he was the uh, brewer um, in charge of, um, well, the brewery, the beers. Um. The first problem was he had done uh, some calculations on uh, the holding tanks that we needed to do. And um, 
after the project uh, had gotten off, I, uh, I, I should have done this sooner, uh, reviewed uh, his numbers. And I came to the conclusion that uh, his numbers were way off, that we needed much larger holding tanks. And he disagreed. And that was sort of the first problem. Um, but then as the, so these holding tanks are the holding tanks you're talking about uh, for the before beer. opening, right? Yes. For, for, for the beer, you're, okay. you're building, you're making beer. Uh, we were operating on a seven barrel system. We had a couple of, uh, 14 barrel fermenters. So you're double batching. Where does those 14 barrels go after the fermentation process? They go into holding tanks. Okay. And if the holding tanks don't have the capacity to hold them all, because you want about uh, somewhere between eight or ten beers on tap, um, generally to make it work, uh, his calculations were off and we needed more holding tanks. And we didn't have the space for the holding tanks. Um, and that became a source of con uh, contention because then we had to start thinking about cannibalizing other areas uh, of the space to for those holding tanks. Okay, so which is why you guys have the not the reorder. What's it called? The uh, change order. Change orders uh, to absorb yes. some of the dining room space for holding tanks. Uh, just one example of why you have the change orders. Mm -hmm. uh, but regarding this relationship, before you guys even discussed opening a, a brewery together or a brew restaurant, brew pub, uh, how did you? How, what was the relationship there? How did you guys even cross paths? Uh, he was a friend of mine from Pennsylvania. Uh, I had been. Uh uh, working at the uh, General Lafayette Inn in uh, Lafayette Hills, Pennsylvania. And he started off as an assistant brewer, eventually became uh, uh, the brewer there for a little while. He had moved on to other projects, but he came back to uh, help out when uh, the place uh, lost its brewer. And uh, we had gotten to be uh, good friends. Okay. And at this time, are you still work? Are you still selling, buying and selling real estate? And working in restaurants? Yes. Okay. Uh, so he approached you and said, hey, let's, you know, like you, you have the operations. You're the, like, what was your lane going into this this, this deal? How did that look? Uh, he had gotten uh, married, I think, in around 96, 97 or so. And his wife was a uh, Navy physician. Okay. And she got stationed in Key West. Got you. And so as he was down in Key West... Uh, he started working at the Key West uh, Brewing Company and thought that there was a, an opening for a, uh, a good brew pub down there. And he was uh, correct about that. And uh, so he contacted me uh, for uh, some investments and some uh, other elements. And then as we started talking about the project more and more, it got more and more interesting for me. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we couldn't, uh, make it work down there. Okay. Uh, the numbers were just too high and all the change orders and all that stuff. Well, that was in Sarasota. Okay, sorry, different example. Uh, this was, uh, when we were in Key West, um, you know, Key West is its own, uh, separate world down gotcha. there. And, uh, you, if you're on, uh, I think it's Duval street, uh, the main street there, uh, you could have a space of maybe 2,000 square feet and you might be paying $30,000 wow. a month in rent, 35000 maybe, you know, today it's maybe as much as 50000 I don't know. Um, but it's a ridiculous amount. So the question is, 
you know, once you're looking at things and how you're doing it. Now, granted, it was uh, cheaper back in uh, 2000, but some of the things that we looked at, you know, just needed way too much work, and it would have blown uh, uh, our budget. We just couldn't make it So happen. you guys were up in New Hampshire. He sees your talent. He sees that you can definitely be uh, – you can bring a lot to the table in trying to develop this brew pub. Uh, you originally were looking at the Key West area. The numbers didn't work out, so you settled on Sarasota. Uh, got the ball rolling there, realized that uh, with all the change orders that you were not going to be able to pull off the project. You decide to pull out new opportunity in Vermont. Is, is the picture – no, okay. the, the, it was Key West, Vermont. Got you. Back down to Sarasota. Okay. Okay. Then back up to New Hampshire. So what was happening in Vermont? This this great prop, this great project. We we can't even skip over that. Well, how did that go well? Um, we found a place called the uh, Maple Leaf uh, Brewery in uh, Wilmington, Vermont. Uh, it was a small space, um, but we had hoped to uh, utilize the second and third floors of the building. It's an old building built in about 1850. Uh, they had a small um, brewery actually operating it, uh, but from the get-go, we needed we needed to realize that that we needed to expand it greatly to to make it uh, what we needed to make it. And um, and was this in Vermont a brew pub as well? Yes, this okay. was a this was a brew pub that you uh, built they, from from the ground up. No, there was a, an existing brew pub called the Maple Leaf Brewery, Got you. and we had bought it. It was just um, a first floor operation in an old eighteen uh, fifties building, and uh, we had uh, wanted to purchase it in order to expand to the second and third floors, and uh, just so. Uh, it, here's a little lesson for uh, anybody listening. When you're talking to city officials, uh, regardless of what they tell you, if it's not in writing, don't. It never happened. <laughs> it never happened. Yeah. So when they told me that, oh, yeah, it won't be a problem expanding to the second and third floors, that's not a problem. Um, it became a huge problem Man. after we purchased it. Um Due to the the way Vermont operates, we ended up being in court for the next three years attempting to use our own second floor. Oh, my gosh. So give me something specific. Get it in writing. What's the process that you would take today, knowing what you know, if you wanted to do the job right without any hiccups uh, before you invest in the project? What's the, the series of events that you would take to make sure your your, your T's are crossing, your dots are out, or your, your eyes are dotted? Uh, well, that's always uh, a little bit difficult. You can do what you think you need to do, uh, but take this uh, project here in Rochester. Uh, when it was an existing restaurant, and I wanted to know if things were going to be grandfathered in or if they were compliant in codes and other things, and I asked the city um, – if they could do an inspection. Of course, the city said no. Uh, I didn't have any standing. I didn't own the building, and I didn't have a lease. So they weren't about to do anything to to help me with it. So I said, okay, let me take another approach. Uh, Have there been any violations in the last five years? And that was public record. And they uh, showed me and said no. And I said, how often do you do these inspections? And they said, oh, we do them every year. 
And I said, great. So I went ahead. Uh, the old restaurant was leaving. We signed a new lease, came in. Uh, five days after we signed the lease, the new fire marshal came in and gave us a list of 32 violations. Oh, man. Uh, of the place. And one of them was, well, you know, your, your hood system, uh, the fire suppression system on your hood is eight years out of date. And I said, eight years out of date. I said, but it passed inspection four months ago. It passed inspection 16 months ago. It passed inspection every year for the last eight years. And they go, eh, Wait, so you took the time to do your due diligence, to do the research, to make sure that everything was passing inspection. As, as much as I could, yes. And even when you found the, the paper trailer, you, you, you had mm-hmm. the evidence that according to the town, everything was you know checked off. Uh, they were like, no, still no. You, you couldn't use any of that. To- nope. They said, well, it was a different, um, uh, different inspector. The truth of the matter is the, the gentleman who owned, who Somebody leased the someone. property before, <laughs> yes, was a very big deal in the town. So yeah. everybody simply turned their head away yep. and never bothered. So he got passing inspections regardless of what the shape the place was in. And so when I went for the paper trail, all I saw was the fact that he passed every single year. So you would assume when it would be kind of a safe assumption that you're good. Yes. Uh, so what is the lesson there? Uh, the lesson there is you always have to go in uh, with your eyes open. Um, if however much you think you need, um, plan on at least fifty dollars to $100,000 more. Yeah. Uh, you don't know what's going to be asked of you. Um, and the irony in going into, uh, old buildings and other things is that the more work you do to update them, the more work now is required due to the codes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the irony is that if you come in and say, well, I'm just going to keep it exactly like it is. Granted, everything's falling apart. Granted, things are moldy and I'm just going to put a new coat of paint. Uh, very often the town is fine with that. But if you come in and say, wait a minute, I want to tear down these walls and, and, and get rid of the mold. And I want to do some of these other things. Uh, now, now the codes start kicking in. And now that $20,000 project is now an $80,000 mm. project. And now you need a, uh, stairwell that's, uh, currently compliant, uh, with current codes. Um, granted the place had been operating a week before under the old codes, uh, and nobody said boo, but that doesn't matter anymore. And so when it comes to these things, uh, you never know. I looked at a, um, a restaurant, uh, for sale in, uh, Nashua, uh, when that I was came before up. coming up here because, uh, right. Well, I was looking up here before I came to Rochester, I looked at a place in Nashua and I saw the hood, uh, system was had to be maybe 30 years old. The restaurant had been there for forever. And one of my great concerns is that uh, even though it was operating now and nobody said boo, that if I purchased the place, the city would make me take down that entire 30-foot hood system and replace the entire thing. Uh, that was not an expense... Um, because somebody's selling you the place, not on the idea that, oh, 
this is going to need a brand new hood system. They're selling you their numbers based on the fact that it has a working hood system. But just because they have a working hood system doesn't mean the city is going to see it that way when you own it. Um, it's one of the things that makes uh, running uh, restaurants um, in particular, but but really any business, uh, very difficult. Uh, you have moving goalposts continually, and the codes change every couple of years. So and, unless you're keeping up with all the codes, the, the electrical, the plumbing, uh, uh, the hazmat, the, the fire suppressions, um, it, it's, it can be a little wondrous for you. And if you hire somebody to go through all those for you, that's also a very large expense. Okay. So uh, we're, we're kind of jumping around today, but you're giving us some really good advice and good experiences. Uh, I kind of want to come full circle real quick on what happened before you came up to New Hampshire uh, to kind of set this up. So you, after Sarasota, you were in Vermont. Did you go back to Vermont? Is that what did I hear? Correctly? No. After Sarasota, um, I sold out of uh, the property in Sarasota. And uh, we moved up here to New Hampshire, and I uh, started... Uh, and what year was that? Uh, 2014. Um, we moved up here. Uh, we found... Actually, it might have been at the end of 2013 when we purchased our house. Gotcha. And I started uh, looking for uh, a space. Interestingly enough, when I found this one in Rochester... Uh, Everybody told me not to come here. Uh, I had so a I'm actually was... happy that you're going here because uh, I was really curious on why you settled on Ro- Rochester. I think that this area uh, is going to be a gr- it, it's it's you're it's all about timing areas, right? Uh, and there there's a lot of good bones here, right? And there's a lot of um, yes. So I guess let me just ask. I'll just let you you explain what your rationale because it seems like you uh your your it factor your your real strength in this industry uh is identifying like you're kind of good with the real estate I'm assuming because of your experience buying up homes uh that seems to be some an interest of you of yours I don't want to make too many assumptions there uh but I'm I'm talking too much I'm just going to pass it back to you uh take us through your your thought process when you moved to New Hampshire finding a location and what. Well, we went through a lot of uh, different towns, different areas. Um, I looked at places in Nashua. I looked at places in Manchester. I looked at places in uh, Concord. I looked at places in Derry. I looked at places uh, all throughout uh, New Hampshire. And I came upon uh, this sort of quite by accident. Um, And... And when I started doing my homework on Rochester, I was like, hey, did you know Rochester is the the fifth largest town in the state? Um, Rochester has a very good population and it has a good income. So you're doing your research. You're doing the you're finding out the demographics. You're figuring Mm -hmm. out the income. Uh, What 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 is good in your opinion? You're, You're saying they had these good things like what? What kind of numbers were you really paying attention to, and how did you determine that those numbers were good? The amount of people and the uh, average income level for the area. And my first question of looking at the number of people and the income level, uh, and then I started looking at, well, where do these people spend their money? 
And I looked around, and I couldn't find any place where they spent their money. When you say you're looking around, you're looking around in the town of Rochester. I'm looking around in the town. I'm looking at restaurants. I'm looking at bars. I'm looking at pizza places. I'm looking at where do people who have money um, spend it. And what I discovered is they don't spend it in Rochester. Uh, There's a couple places on the outskirts that they uh, spend uh, some time with. But basically, they go to Portsmouth, they go to Dover, and it's sort of a special event yeah. for them. And just to paint the picture real quick for the listeners who aren't familiar with New Hampshire, uh, Rochester is kind of not the, – the towns Portsmouth and Dover are considered uh, seacoast New Hampshire. And Rochester is about a half hour north of Portsmouth, which is like the big go-out town, like the town where a lot of people spend their money. It's where probably most of the money is, that area in New Hampshire. Yes. And it's about a half hour north uh, east from Rochester. And then Dover is like right about in the middle, uh, about 15, 10 minutes south uh, east of Rochester. Uh, so this is along Route 16. So basically people, like Rochester is right on Route 16. So they're bombing down the highway, uh, either 15 minutes to Dover or a half hour to Portsmouth to spend their money. Yes. And uh, what I also noticed uh, from a Rochester perspective is that you have a lot of people north of the city and west of the city where there is nothing mm-hmm. uh, there. There are no restaurants. There are no bars. It's all rural. Uh, much of Stratford and uh, those areas. So where do they go? Well, they go down to Dover and Portsmouth too, maybe once a week, you know, maybe twice. Uh, But it's sort of a longer haul for Mm -hmm. them uh, to get there. So the idea was if we were to put something akin to Portsmouth, which is um, sort of the culinary mecca of New Hampshire uh, in Rochester, would people come? And the, my bet was that they would. Uh, Rock, uh, Portsmouth itself, uh, though uh, the culinary center of New Hampshire, uh, is was at the point where it's starting to get saturated. Uh, parking is very difficult. Um, people don't like to pay for parking. Uh, Rochester has oodles of free parking. And... It was. Uh, I wanted a place where people could come. Uh, they could get uh, food uh, fresh from uh, New Hampshire farms. Uh, we have a forty tap beer selection. I wanted to use you know local and uh, national beers and give them that real sort of kid in a candy store look for for beer geeks. And uh, it has worked. We've become. Um, uh, for many people, they're uh, home away from home, if you will. Uh, we very often have people come in three, four, or five days a week. We are their local place, but we're also the place um, where uh, others come for that uh, once a week dinner out or um, or that special event. So for those people who are saying don't do Rochester, stay away from Rochester, uh, what was the reason? What, why do you think they were saying this to you? Because they've lived here here all their lives. It's sort of the old, um, no one can be a uh, prophet in their own hometown. Yeah. uh, As the saying goes, because basically people knew you as a kid. And basically people who've lived here all their lives have seen Rochester uh, go downhill, go downhill, go downhill. 
And so seeing Rochester in a new light, they've had 20 years of ingraining what they see around them. And after a while, you begin to think it can't be anything else. And then you have an entire generation that's grown up and has never known anything else. So very often it does take somebody from the outside to come in and say, hey, this could be different. Um, I had a neighbor. I live in uh, Deerfield, New Hampshire, and I had a neighbor. And they said, oh, I hear you're wanting to go to – set up a place in Rochester. And I said, yes. And she says, oh, don't go to Rochester. <laughs> she goes, I grew up there. You don't really want to go to well, Rochester. I, I think, keep going. Were you gonna- I, I had a, I had a former mayor uh, say, oh, you're, you're, you're coming to Rochester. Um, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, I think what would happen, and at the time, I, f- I feel like these people would have been right uh, 10 years before up to that point, right? Because of what would happen, the trend was still going down uh, in Rochester. And a lot of, Cities like Lewiston, Maine, for example, is another one. Uh, these these decent sized cities that at one point during like the industrial age were booming cities who had factories. They're right outside, like the the Dovers, the 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 Lawrences, the Worcesters, the Claremonts. Like, yeah, that are like close to the coast, but like maybe like fifty miles inland or a uh, little like in between in rural and city, right? And during the early twentieth uh, century, uh, the industrial age is coming to an end. Now. It, People are doing more uh, for cheaper and bigger factories or shipping off, off cor- shores, right? We're, so all these jobs are going away. People need to go to the big cities to get work, and all these towns suffered, right? But things are swinging back the other way. I think a lot of small towns are starting uh, – the, the framework is here. The infrastructure is here. There's so much, so much opportunity in these towns, and with people working remotely and stuff like that, there's – Almost like a like the pendulum is swinging back away from the big city into these smaller towns again. And if you can time it right, if you can find a, a town that's on the low but now starting to like revamp up and, and build again, I think that's kind of what happened in the situation. Like you, like Rochester's kind of on the upswing. Uh, it's would you agree or disagree with that statement? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Um, yes, uh, Rochester. Um, uh, probably is on the upswing but um you know sort of like uh gandhi and uh barack obama you know we have to be the change we're looking for yes uh we have to take the initiative it's not going to uh change on its own so which part of that didn't didn't you agree with i guess i don't understand um you see a lot of development on the outskirts of rochester you see um uh, condos, townhomes, uh, apartments, and the city has spent a lot of time and effort developing a mall uh, just north of the downtown. But as far as the downtown goes, um, the city has done nothing. Um, you know, they, they've upped police patrols. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've poured no money into the downtown. They fight anybody who wants to spend money in the downtown. Um, because, uh, very often all those people who, uh, as we said, you know, have looked at Rochester for, for 20 years and seen nothing. Many of them sit on the city council, (laughs) many of them sit on the boards of the town. So to their view, it's throwing good money after bad and investing in sort of the downtown, uh, the nice, bright, shiny mall north of the city. 
you know, that's great for them. Uh, but there are a few people uh, that sit on city council. There are a few people uh, in town who uh, are uh, attempting to do things to, to really help and bolster the city. Um, and it's more in spite of the city government uh, than with the support of the city government. Yeah. Uh, and I'm aware uh, – I'm not from Rochester. I'm, I, I grew up about an hour south of Rochester in southern New Hampshire, a town called East Kingston. But I'm close enough to Rochester to kind of know the rumors. And I, there, there is also this, uh, this stigma about Rochester with the, the drug issues that are here too. Did, was that, that come up with people with uh, the drug abuse or – is that something that crossed your radar moving into the city? Oh, absolutely. Um, but once again, I, I uh, grew up and cut my teeth in uh, in and around Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a bad Philadelphia neighborhood <laughs> is a lot different yeah. than a bad New Hampshire right. neighborhood. <laughs> That's a good um, point. You know, there are places in Philadelphia, even today, I, I wouldn't go at noon, mm-hmm. <laughs> walk around. <laughs> Um, but here, you know, the, there's not, you know, it's New Hampshire, um, uh, New Hampshire's drug alley. There's not really a lot of, there's not Comparably, everything's relative and it's really not that bad. Yeah. So, so in that extent, it didn't scare me at all, uh, to do it. But, uh, once again, you know, the town had made, um, a lot of the mistakes, uh, that, big cities have made over the years. Uh, Philadelphia back in the uh, 60s and 70s decided, they said, hey, if we put our low-income housing uh, in the center of really nice neighborhoods, those really nice neighborhoods will keep the low-income housing from going downhill. Well, it had the reverse effect. It turned the bad, it goes good neighborhoods into bad neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did in a lot of the towns, uh, in New Hampshire and all along, all throughout the United States. They put their low income housing into, uh, good solid neighborhoods, thinking that the good solid neighborhoods would help would anchor lift it. Them up. Yeah. And what it did was tear down those solid neighborhoods. And in the case of Rochester, that good solid neighborhood, uh, is right off Main Street. Uh, so that became a lot of, uh, lower and lower income, you know, had a lot of section eight, you do a lot of these things. And for those, uh, for the powers that be and the people in charge, they didn't see, they didn't have a vision of what could be. They just sort of looked at it as it is. This is what it is. This is probably what it'll be for the next 30, 40 years. So let's try to make the, the best of a bad situation. Yeah. You mentioned something that struck a vein with me. Uh, be the change you want to see. And this mentality that, what did you mean by that? And, and are you trying to do that here in Rochester? Uh, yes. I mean, we're, we're often cited, the revolution is often cited as one of the, the catalysts for the town. Uh, one of the things that the town talks about on their website, one of the things that the town talks about in their brochures, one of the things that people look at and see and go, aha, look, Rochester is changing, you know, look at this. Um, you have, um, though we have a very cute, uh, little strip of, uh, downtown shops you have more than 50 percent of them vacancy yeah um you still need people to come uh down here and it's very hard um 
you know, you have, uh, though the rent is uh, cheap, um, you know, who has an idea to put in um, a nice storefront? Uh, you're not going to have any large corporations come downtown. It's not, you know, they want the 200 parking Do we spaces. want large co- corporations downtown? Uh, no, but you need that money. Uh, to do it because what you're doing is you're getting people with just um, you know there's looking no... for SBA loans and stuff like that. Like, yeah, they need it, help to get it done. But the banks aren't going to give you the loans. The government's not going to give you loans. If it's it, a, it doesn't help for small business, a neighborhood that has a bad reputation, never yeah. done it uh, before. Well, even so, it, it's you know even if you come in with you know ten or twenty grand and let's say you double it to forty, uh, can you start your own little business? You know, with that, is that going to be enough when you come in and now you're hit with the, all the new uh, regulations, making sure things are handicap accessible, making sure the fire safety codes are correct, making sure the stairwells are correct, making sure uh, you have the handicap ramps, making sure everything is done and proper. And so it becomes very, very difficult. Not only that, but you also, they also have to make it nice and interesting and for people to go, ooh, and ah, when they come in and want to come back. And very often what you're getting are people who don't have the resources. If they're not doing gangbuster business when they open those doors, they don't have the monies to stay open long term. It's why, you know, most, you know, you know, was it 70% of all restaurants fail within the first three years? It's they don't have the working capital to keep going. Real quick, uh, just to summarize, it kind of sounds like you feel like uh, some of these cities are making uh, building and rebuilding these downtown areas almost unobtainable, unreachable because of the regulations put in place and other things like that. Is that what I'm picking up for you? Yeah, I. Portsmouth started to go through its renaissance. Um, most people tell you, and today Portsmouth is a beautiful city. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely walking city. It's downtown. It's the culinary mecca. Back in the 70s, it looked a lot like Rochester. Or even even going back as like the early 90s, uh, it was a totally different place. I remember hearing stories of what it was like back then, uh, people that were a little bit yeah. older than me, and it's, it's come around a lot since then. Uh, and, and, and they've done a lot to do it, and the businesses that other things you know came in, and they can help you know uh, foster business and doing other things, and how do we get this you know downtown? How do we get that money? Uh, you need, you know, you're building a downtown, not unlike you build a mall. You need, you need your big anchors, yeah. whatever that is. And then, you know, fill it up with the other uh, interesting little places. So I had the chance when I was in Cincinnati, uh, I didn't spend much time in Cincinnati, but it sounds like um, there's some really cool things happening in the heart of Cincinnati to really turn that city around. And one quote one thing that stood out to me during the conversation i think it was uh, i can't remember the, the gentleman's name but his first name was dan uh talking about his restaurant is the, the that change comes from the, within the heart of the city the center of the city and out uh, and it sounds like what's not happening in rochester is the change is happening on the outskirts and people are avoiding the heart uh and if you really want to make long change you got to go into the heart of that city and you got to be the change you want to see and that's kind of it seems like what you're trying to do is you're you're in the heart of the city and you're and you're, and you're influencing uh, from the center out. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, I, I think that's uh, correct in several ways. Um, also, one of the things you see in uh, 
you know, just our industry and the restaurant industry. Um, when you do everything right in the restaurant industry, you know, you may be making 15% um, return on your investment. Um, that's a very low margin. Uh, you do a couple of things wrong, uh, that's down to 10%. Uh, you do some more things wrong, and pretty soon you You're have a no, negative. <laughs> right, you don't have any profits at all. So one of the things, uh, if you notice, a lot of uh, – you don't see very many one-off restaurants anymore. And restaurant groups uh, who operate in large cities have three, four, five, six. They may be different concept restaurants, but they need – uh, five or six restaurants uh, to make it profitable um, uh, for the investors to, mm -hmm. to get that money back to do it. That, well, we don't make a lot off this one restaurant, but if we had five of them, now we're getting a, a, a good return mm -hmm. on what we're doing. And, uh, you know, and for that effort, um, you know, people have become you know, far savvier over the, over the last 20 years. They expect uh, more money uh, or more bang for their buck. Uh, the problem is you have uh, food costs that are constantly rising. You have labor costs that are constantly rising. And this is crunching um, uh, the numbers for restaurants uh, greatly. Uh, so as they've decided that they need three, four, five restaurants, uh, some corporations uh, or restaurant groups uh, have literally taken on the task of themselves of developing the downtown. That, you know, we're in a small town, uh, we have our one restaurant, we're going to take over five or six more shops. And it's going to be this type of concept and this type of concept, and maybe we'll... Um, you know, if we can buy this building, renovate it, and then maybe lease it out. But it has to be to certain concepts, to certain things. We're not just looking for rent. And it's the private companies that end up developing the downtown. Because, A, it's good for business because they're, they're literally the ones doing it. And then as they see these businesses coming in, they can, you know, they have more pull to get the town to say, hey, why don't we put in some uh, new lampposts? Hey, why don't we put in a new walkway? Hey, why don't we do some things to make it, you know, more nicer? Yeah. And you start getting that, that foot traffic and place where people want to come and they want to hang out. And, and then you can do, you know, concerts and parades and all sorts of things. And all of a sudden you have a booming downtown that, you know, 10 years before, was nothing. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like that's what capitalism should be sometimes of, of starting a business and slowly creating opportunity for other people and going out and investing the money back into the community. Uh, isn't that what we should be doing when we're making money, making money, giving like, you know, creating opportunity for other people and putting it back into the community? Well, ostensibly you should be doing that at, at, uh, all levels. I mean, quite frankly, you know, if you're giving money to the government, you know, you're giving money to your town, you're giving money to your city. Why aren't they doing it? Exactly. You know, so, you know, uh, at least the, uh, is that what that, the, the, that little smirk was when, when I said that? Well, it's, <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's the idea that, you know, here the government's taking your money, you know, essentially by force. They're, they're just grabbing it. Uh, here, 
the companies are doing it because they see an opportunity. They see something and they're trying to plant a seed and maybe the seed will work or maybe it won't work. Um, and you hope it, it, it does. And cause it'll be not only beneficial for the town, but it'll be beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you need someone to, to get in and take charge. Yeah. And, uh, you need someone to, to get in and take charge. What do you mean? Who, of, of get into the, the city, the, to, the government, to, or the... To have a vision of what the area can be and what the area should be. Would you say, is it safe to say that you're that person that's trying to come into this area and take charge and to, to make impact? Uh, I like to think we are. We, we've looked at other uh, spaces in town, have uh, weighed uh, other concepts. Uh, initially, when uh, we created uh, the revolution... It wasn't made to be a one-off place. Uh, we started looking at other uh, sites and other areas. Um, but quite frankly, that idea of helping Rochester, um, it's one place to, to, to create something where a place is wanted. It's another thing to put a, uh, something into a place that's needed. And to help bolster the downtown, yeah, we have thought about what to do and how to do it, what concepts are uh, needed, what could be done, um, you know, and and what are the costs to them. Uh, One of the things that's, you know, hurting the restaurant industry across the nation um, is labor. Uh, Labor is fewer and far between. Um, places of having to do a lot more with less. You see a lot more concepts like uh, Chipotle, where people come up and get their own food. There's you know no servers, you know very you know little bussers. Everybody's you know you can do it with a lot less staff, yeah. and that is a reaction uh, to the uh, to the lack of staffing for places. I mean, we have forty. Uh, I think 43, 44 employees currently. And it's hard to to maintain that. Um, You have people coming, you have people going. Uh, We spend $1,500 a month, uh, every month, uh, just on advertising for positions here. And just because I have a full staff on Monday doesn't mean I'm going to have one on Thursday. And so as you go forward, you have to look at, you know, do if we can't uh, get our staff uh, together uh, for this concept, uh, if we open another concept that's similar or that's labor heavy, how can we do that? Yeah, you end up cannibalizing one con- restaurant to open the second one, pulling right. up your people. So the concept has to be different. The concept has to be uh, new and how do we do it and uh, what will work in a particular area. So, Mark, we've covered a lot. It's almost been an hour of recording time. Anything that we haven't talked about yet, anything that's near and dear to your heart that you were hoping we would discuss in this time we had together? Oh, I'm not sure. It, it's... Um you know, get the basics of uh, having a restaurant uh, don't change. Um, good food, good concept, uh, a place where people uh, like uh, like the place feel comfortable. They want to en- 
enjoy themselves, whether it's just for a quick beer or, you know, whether it's for a, a full dinner or a major event. Um, but the costs are continually rising for those, uh, for those businesses. Um, but my advice to anybody who's starting to do it, um, have a complete vision. Um, don't think, well, I'd like to own a restaurant. I'm not exactly sure what kind. Um, cause every single day you will be open. You will need, you will make 50 decisions that, uh, go directly to the heart of your business. And if you don't make those, and if you aren't the one making those decisions, then other people will be making those decisions and they will not necessarily have your best interests in heart when they make them. Uh, under, you know, have a concept together. Uh, know what you want the food to look like. Know what you want the drinks to look like. What the servers uh, are, are to wear and, you know, the bartenders and, you know, who's supposed to be doing what and, and you know, and your training program and other things. Um, these are all things that people, you know, basically neglect or think they'll take care of themselves and they don't. Um, and as I said, um, service, uh, at its very basic level is always a constant struggle. You may think your people are giving good service, but look at those Yelp reviews, look at those Google reviews. Um, and chances are if they gave bad service to one customer, they've given it to a lot of customers. And you might say, well, I don't have time to, to look over the shoulder of every one of my people. Uh, that's something you have to take into consideration because that is hurting your, uh, business and bottom line. And you're, you know, uh, trying to run uphill if you're not looking at that. So when you have this vision of your complete vision of, of what everything sh- should look like and how you want it to be, how do you make sure you hit that mark? What things do you do to make sure it comes out like that every time? How do we keep it consistent? Uh, through hard work and practice, practice, practice. Um, you have to have uh, situations in place where uh, your people are trained properly. And, um, you know, don't let fear drive you. If you say, well, you know, this person's not a good employee, but if I don't have this person, you know, that means I got to come in at seven o'clock in the morning. Well, if you're not prepared to come in at seven o'clock in the morning, then you probably shouldn't have opened up that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that business to begin with. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's tiring and it's tough. And if it's not a labor of love, uh, by all means, please do not do it. There's better ways to spend your money. So what? let me ask you this. What is it that you love about this industry? The camaraderie, the people, um, you know, the, the idea of uh, people getting together, having a drink, being able to discuss uh, the day's events or what's going on, and just that sitting and relaxing at the end of the day. Uh, you work hard, you want a place, uh, where you can come and relax. And that was, uh, you know, a major element in creating the revolution. The revolution was, uh, designed to be a modern take on a, uh, colonial tavern. And, uh, so to that extent, uh, the lines we use, uh, how are things, uh, done here? 
uh, tend to reflect that, but also that idea of just being able to sit and talk and have, you know, uh, something you can have, uh, an entree, you could just have a burger, you can have a beer, you can have a martini, whatever you like, you can have as much or as little as you like, sit, have a good time and, you know, relax, you know, you've worked hard, uh, uh, during the day, you know, come in and have a good time. Yeah, and I just want to add something onto that, the, the whole play on revolution. And uh, it's a very fitting name because you came into a city that was struggling. Uh, you, you put faith in it. You trusted. Uh, you put energy into the city. And it, there's almost like a revolution happening in the city of Rochester. And it's because of people like you who are coming in and trying to uh, inject money back into the community, right, and to turn things around and to make things nice again. And things won't become nice. They won't get nice. They won't get back to the way – it was until people come in and, and you say somebody's ha- has to do something about this, but you're you're doing something about it. And I think that's the mentality we all need to have when somebody when we say somebody's got to do something about this. We all need to you know strap our boots on, uh, collaborate with other people in the community and do something about it. And I just want to say thank you for from somebody who lives in New Hampshire, like you're you're turning things around. Oh well, well, well thank you very much. I mean, it just goes to. Uh you know, also the idea of vision, mm-hmm. you know, some people look at a house that's falling down and all they see is a house that's falling down. Other people look at the house and say, Oh my God, this could so be much beautiful. Yeah. This could be great. You should have to do this. And if you did this and this, and all of a sudden, you know, you have a beautiful estate. Um, you know, it's too, you have to be able to have that vision. And then the second part of that is the wherewithal to, to see it through. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's climbing the mountain and, you know, I don't know if you'll get to the top of the mountain. I don't know if I'll get to the top of the mountain in my lifetime, but, uh, that's the goal and that's what we hope for. And, uh, you know, that's what it means to be a community. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with CashflowTool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. CashflowTool.com is simple powerful and predictive it's simple because it requires no data entry it's always up to date and it works on any device anywhere it's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar activity feed and anomaly detector you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises and it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. 
employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success uh the 40 taps uh system in uh beers it gives uh you know, I look at the beer and taps um, as sort of a kid in a candy store. Uh, if you're a beer person, you come in, you look at those taps, and you go, wow, you know, what is that? What is that? What is that? I want to try that. I want to taste that. Uh, that's really a factor that uh, goes a long way. Beautiful. And what is your personal factor? You, something that you have that you think makes you successful in this business? Uh, attention to detail. Beautiful. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? I don't suffer fools lightly. <laughs> you don't <laughs> suffer fools lightly. What do you mean by that? I mean, um, you know, the idea that common sense isn't all that common. And uh, I tend to sometimes get a little bit more upset than I should uh, <laughs> over it. I need more understanding. Got you. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're building that team? personality what is your biggest challenge today staffing how are you overcoming it uh trying to uh build on the people we have here and uh reach out uh uh to those we've yet to uh meet Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be, a way to act, a way to present yourself. Uh, professional uh, and sell. Uh, people want knowledge. If they ask about beers, can you answer the questions about beers? Food on the menu. One of the things we say is that uh, the server should is, is a Sherpa guide. You know, uh, you're guiding them up the mountain of that menu. What's there? What's this? They have questions. You're there to answer them. So maybe it's a good segue into the next question, which is what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? It sounds like educating. Uh, One uncommon uh, thing. I'm not sure if it's uh, uncommon, but uh, I will say this. Never underestimate what people don't know. Um Sometimes you think that this is sort of common knowledge and everybody should know X or Y, even people who've been with you for uh, a number uh, of months or even years. And the truth is they don't know it. They've never come across it before. And, you know, don't assume. Got you. Uh, What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Sun Tzu's Art of War. (laughs) Give me one lesson from that book that is a... worth reading to become a better operator well what i like about uh sun tzu is that uh it's the idea that uh what you do in preparation for the battle uh determines the battle that if you end up having to fight it you you've probably already lost 
if there is one tool or resource you wish you had now or that you have now that you wish you had when you're getting started, what would that one tool or resource be? Oh, the internet. <laughs> uh, before, when when I was a uh, young lad starting out and I wanted to know what a gremolata was, um, I either had to go to the library or bug the chef, and the chef was not that interested in, <laughs> in letting me know uh, what things are. Now you can look them up. You know, there's no reason you can't uh, teach yourself about whiskeys or bourbons or beer or or food and other things. You you have the entire world at your fingertips, and you know there, there's no excuse for not knowing. What's one thing you feel restaurateurs don't know well enough or do often enough? Um, restaurateurs uh, need to know uh, the industry, need to know the business. Um, I'm, you know, I I I'm on my laptop, you know, seven hours a day, but I would never think of going. Oh, I'm an IT guy. You know, yet you have people constantly who've never been in the business. Who say, well, wouldn't it be fun to open up a restaurant? Won't it be fun to open up a bar? Uh, just because you drink at one do- doesn't mean you know how to run one. Yeah. And uh, you end up throwing a lot of, um, you know, uh, good money after bad uh, doing that sort of thing. Got you. And is there one technology you've adopted uh, that has had a positive influence on operations, communications, profitability, efficiency that you can share with us? Uh, yes. Um, uh, computer programs that, uh, um, deal with inventory and also, uh, accounting. Which ones have you adopted? Can you think of them? Uh, the one we currently use, if I could give them a plug is, a is a situation called RSI. It's, it's not for, uh, everyone, but it does give you, um, like any of these programs, um, if you don't do your due if you don't do your diligence, you know you get crap in, crap out. But if you do it, you'll have your numbers at your fingertips, um, you know, every single day, and that is a godsend. All right, and this is the last question. It's a doozy, so get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true uh, for the good of humanity and for your reputation. What, what, what would you leave behind? <laughs> the three things you know. Uh, the, the three things that I know. Well, I'm not I wish sure I, could, I, 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 I no, I don't think I'm that bright. Um, I wish I had a camera for this question sometimes. <laughs> the look I get in the guests when they're like, wow, what are you doing to me, man? Uh, yeah, you're uh, you know, coming up with things and, and putting me on the spot. I think I should have gotten uh, the, these questions ahead of time. I could have given them a little bit more uh, thought. Um, you know, uh, leaving the world, uh, tomorrow, leaving people with, uh, wisdom. I don't know. Um, that's one, <laughs> you know, try, uh, that's two, you know, you, you will regret not trying far more than you will regret trying and failing. Awesome. Three beautiful. And we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So is there somebody that you can think of that you admire in this industry? Somebody that you look to for inspiration and somebody that you think I need to make an example of? Call them out. I'll get them on the show. We can learn from them together. Um, I would like to give a, a shout out to a, an old boss of mine, uh, Joe Varelli. 
Uh, I don't know if he's in the uh, still in the industry uh, anymore. He opened up a, a restaurant uh, upstairs at Varelli's and Soto Varelli's in Philadelphia. Um, I always uh, like Joe. Um, he he strode the line between uh, uh, a good boss and and uh, a great boss, but uh, he knew what he wanted. And uh, was always kept uh, thinking for the betterment of uh, his restaurant. I don't Beautiful. know what he's doing today, but uh, Joe, if you're out there, I miss you, buddy. If I'm in Philly, Joe, look out. I'm coming after you. And let the folks at home know if maybe you want to come join your team or uh, reach out to you uh, for some advice, what's the best way to connect or follow what you're doing here? Uh, you could shoot us something through uh, our uh, website, revolutiontaproomandgrill.com. Uh, uh, or uh, simply uh, message us on Facebook, or um, if you're in the area, come by. We're at 61 North Main Street in Rochester, New Hampshire. Our phone number is 603-244-3022. Um, I'm here at least four or five days a week, and uh, come in, see what we do. Beautiful. And then hopefully you'll enjoy yourself. Mark Marcioni, thank you again for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> we'll cut it there. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable, and I didn't mention it during today's recording, but this is episode 542, so head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 542 if you want a summary of today's discussion and a link to any tools or services that were mentioned along with the books that were mentioned in today's show and awesome stuff today. Uh, some really great advice on things to consider when looking at new space, real estate, right? Uh, doing your homework, doing uh, your homework with the demographics uh, and really asking yourself, uh, what's a good spot to open a restaurant? And I'm, I kind of lean in favor of people that open restaurants in cities that are uh, on the down, that are on the swing back up and, and developing an eye for finding these cities that are on the swing up and being the 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 way the means to which the city swings right uh and really change comes from the core if you want to change something you gotta change comes from the inside out just like we if we want to change ourselves it comes from changing our values changing our habits changing our disciplines the same thing happens with a city or a community you gotta make change from the inside out and i I love seeing restaurants uh like revolution uh, restaurant tours like mark who don't shy away from a challenge and go into a city that has a bad reputation uh, that and you know to not listen to anyone and say you know screw all of you guys if you know we we all hear it you know somebody will say somebody has to do something about this but the truth is we need to do something about change uh and i just wanted to tip my hat to mark and the, the folks over here who are uh taking the initiative to uh to change a community and uh, to take the risk. Awesome stuff. All right, guys, like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, and Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Uh, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. But the best way to support this podcast is by sharing it. Uh, if you know of anybody who's aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry, put this sucker on their radar. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. I love you all. And until next time, peace out.